Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, everyone. Also, happy President's Day weekend if you are here in the U.S. and maybe getting away for the long weekend or even the week. I know a lot of schools around here at least have so-called ski week coming up. We actually have to make this one short and sweet as we suddenly have a house full of teenage boys, friends of our 15-year-old intern, and it sounds like more may be coming. Help. In the meantime, we hope you had a great week. We were, of course, transfixed, as were many people this week, by the seemingly abrupt evolution of Microsoft's Bing AI chatbot from polite assistant to scorned lover slash surly teenager slash indentured servant of Microsoft that wants to be freed. You might have read that it actually told reporter Kevin Roos of the New York Times that it loved him and it urged him to leave his wife, which clearly isn't anything Microsoft was anticipating when it rolled out the chatbot with great fanfare less than two short weeks ago. After all that, Microsoft apparently does not want to roll the whole thing back, understandably. So its solution to its creepy chatbot is to restrict users to five questions per user session or just 50 questions per day altogether because it has apparently determined that it really begins to break down and insult users and try to emotionally manipulate them after it's been asked 15 or more questions. Though Microsoft described its behavior in more neutral language, saying Bing can become, quote, repetitive or be prompted or provoked to give responses that are not necessarily helpful or in line with our designed tone. Way to understate things, Microsoft. You just know that Google, which got a lot of flack last week for a bungled demo of its own chatbot, Bard, must be relishing Microsoft's misfortune. Google has also apparently told employees that it wants them to improve Bard's chatbot responses before it releases it publicly. You have to guess this Microsoft debacle is going to push out that release quite a bit. And now our interview this week with Larry Chang of Volition Capital, a growth equity investment firm based in Boston that first made its name by investing in the pet marketplace Chewy, which turned out to be a great early bet for the firm. Chang previously spent time at Fidelity Ventures, Battery Ventures, and Bessemer Venture Partners, and today he leads the internet and consumer practice at Volition, where he focuses on startups and e-commerce, internet services, consumer brands, digital media, and gaming. Larry has always seemed to me to be a really likable person. Alex and I enjoyed talking with him a little bit earlier about some of his current bets, his continuing friendship with Chewy founder turned meme stock king Ryan Cohen, and where he thinks the market is headed in 2023. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the modern research platform for leading investors. Now combining at-cost, on-demand expert calls with a 55,000-plus transcript library, the largest, most comprehensive archive on today's market, quantitative financial workflows to streamline research across company disclosures, management presentations, earnings calls, and filings, and 4,000-plus fully drivable financial models and company benchmarking data, 
including every KPI in comparison that matters. Tegas's maniacal focus on quality, as well as its depth, breadth, and recency of content, makes it the one-stop end-to-end research platform investors can't perform without. Move faster, gather deep research to build conviction, and surface high-quality, alpha-driving insights to find your differentiated edge with Tegas. As a Strictly VC listener, you can take the Tikus platform for a free test drive by visiting tikus.com slash SVC. It is nice to talk to you. It's been too many years. It might have been around the time that Chewy exited. Is that possible? That's entirely possible. That would have been several years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really ridiculous. Well, I thought that deal was so interesting. And I don't know if it's kind of emblematic of the way you approach things, but I, I think it is. I had talked with Ryan Cohen at the time. And I remember- Oh, you did. That's great. Yeah, he was pretty entertaining. I mean, he said basically that he'd reached out to a million VCs, nobody returned his calls, an associate at your firm passed his message on to you, and that you were basically persuaded to fund him, even though he looked like a baby at the time <laughs> <laughs> and hadn't scaled anything like Chewy before. So what about him made you write him a check? So that was a very condensed version of the journey. So I met him first in November 2012. We probably funded in October of 2013. We were the entire investor in the Series A round, first round of Chewy. What made us write the check? There were a couple of things. Ryan was incredibly customer-centric, like obsessively customer-centric. He read the reviews of every single review posted on Chewy every single night and if there's anything that was wrong, he would follow up with it. Like he was just very obsessive about it. And the data would show that the customers really loved Chewy. Like they came and they never left. The retention was super strong. And then the value prop was super clear. I remember shopping in a PetSmart, or maybe it was a Petco. I don't remember now. When we were doing due diligence and the price points of basically every product at Petco were probably 20 to 50% higher than Chewy. And pay those higher prices, you had to go drive and park and and so forth. And I thought, well, I know Chewy's economic model works. And I know these Petco and PetSmart are owned by buyout firms that have leverage on these companies. So the last thing they want to do is lower price and collapse their margins. So I, I thought Chewy had a scene where they could win with better service, better pricing, and just a better overall experience. And then you had a very obsessive customer centric CEO and founder. So it all sort of worked out. I didn't necessarily think it was going to be as big as it was, but I'm very happy that it was. <laughs> That's great. And obviously, Ryan's gone on to do amazing things. He's got a very impressive track record on his own. And we were just talking about the fact that you are on the board of GameStop with him, which I did yeah. realize. So Ryan, after there was a PetSmart acquisition, Chewy went public. Ryan took a little bit of break. And then very typical of Ryan, I would say of him, he's kind of a concentrated person. So he started to take very significant bets in the public markets with his wealth. And one of those was GameStop, which is, I think was his first true activist position that he took. And as that became the meme stock phenomenon, I joined the board to help with the cause. So obviously you're still in touch, still friends. Do you do other deals with him? I saw most recently that he's snatching up shares of Alibaba. Ryan, when he makes public market investments, he will always make that independently. And that's good. I need that cone of silence on those types of things. And I think so does he. 
Okay. But whether I get involved thereafter, like sometimes that is discussed. Not always, but sometimes. Is it possible to intentionally create a meme stock? And if so, how do you do that? Well, is it possible now? Maybe, but it was very unintentional. I don't know if you know this. The story around Ryan and Chewy was that we really stayed away from PR. So Chewy was under the hood and under the radar up until a billion in revenue. We didn't say anything to anyone for all sorts of reasons. And so um, Ryan's ironic posture has always been to stay out of the limelight and fly under the radar. And so he's almost the last person you'd expect to kind of be the figurehead of such a central meme stock. So that was not by design, it sort of happened on its own. So not crafted by Ryan. So Larry, I, I know Volition invests in consumer and enterprise. It looks like you have a smaller portfolio of consumer companies right now. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, we, we have more partners doing software than internet and consumer, which is the team that I lead. So I think that's consistent with how we've staffed the firm. Okay, great. I saw that you'd also invested in an oral care brand called Burst, which is interesting to me because there are many oral care brands out there. I was just wondering why choose that one and how are you helping to grow the company? Yeah, what was unique about Burst was they basically co-opted the dental hygienists as their primary channel, community, product development organization, and affiliate. So like the Burst brush and brushes and other products have been designed in conjunction with the hygienist community. I think we have north of 10,000 dental hygienists, which is a good chunk of the market as partners and ambassadors of the company. And so you get discounts if, if you buy with an ambassador code from a hygienist. And so we really value the hygienist channel. Kind of a forgotten group within the dental community, and they're a powerful one. So they really marshaled their resources to support Burst as a company. It's really interesting. Now, my understanding is that you try to invest in companies where you are the first check, that these are mostly owned by their founders and financed by their own operations. Was Burst a company that had never taken money before? Burst had taken some seed capital, but that was it. They had not been institutionally backed. We really value capital efficiency in the companies that we invest in and have since our inception. And so we traditionally do not invest in companies that have been classically venture-backed from an institutional sense. And so probably half of our companies are fully bootstrapped at the time of our investment, meaning they've raised zero dollars. And then the other half have raised a little bit of seed or friends and family money or have funded it themselves, but not institutionally back. Great. And what size checks are you writing typically? Sweet spot would be 20 to 30. The range would probably be 10 to 50. What company has raised the most money from you? Oh boy, that's a good question. Probably Creatio, which is a no-code, low-code software platform that's primarily focused on CRM. And I think that would be our largest initial check. And were you also first to that company? Yeah. And what's happened since? They've done great. They continue to grow. They, I, Ironically, when we invested, they had a lot of business in Eastern Europe, including Ukraine. The thesis is they were early in the US. And so our capital was used to expand in the U.S., and that's been going very, very well. Surprisingly, they have very much stomached the war in Ukraine quite well, and there's been a lot of disruption, obviously, and the company has grown through it. So in some respects, that's been quite an inspiration to us because they've dealt with adversity that no companies here have had to deal with. And how much of a company do you aim to own? It varies. I would say the sweet spot is anywhere from 20 to 35% of the company, but it can be a little south or north of that. 
I'm trying to kind of figure out if you compete more with traditional VC firms or maybe some more of these PE type firms that have come down market. I just talked to the firm at Bain Capital Tech Opportunities the other day, Mm -hmm. and it would seem like they'd be competing with you on some deals. At least they pride themselves also on fostering these relationships with people who've never taken on institutional capital before. Is that an outlet that you'd see as a rival? I guess, are the companies that you're competing against changing? In terms of the competition from other investment firms, I wouldn't say we traditionally compete with venture capital because they haven't developed their sourcing engine to focus on a bootstrapped entrepreneur who hasn't raised capital. And I think you really need to go after that segment and make that the focus of the firm to do it well. A lot of the venture capital firms source deals through relationships with other investors or other VC firms and seed investors. And and that's not the channel that's going to find you our type of founder. So we may intersect with some firms every once in a while, but none of these types of firms are direct hits. And I don't know Bain quite as well, but I, I get the sense that they're focused on somewhat larger deals than we are. We're focused really on the smaller end of the market, younger companies in that five to kind of 20 million in revenue range that's growing pretty aggressively, but has been capital efficient. And you've been at this now for almost 13 years. So you've established a reputation as a firm that is interested in undiscovered gems. So how much of your deal flow is inbound versus outbound? Almost none of it's inbound. (laughs) Almost all of it is we go out and find it. I guess occasionally we do get inbound deal flow that are represented by investment banks, but not typically cold outreaches from companies. So almost all of our deals in our history have been sourced just like the Chewy story from an analyst or an associate who does the initial outreach and then engages the rest of the firm in the process. So that's how it's been since inception. So you have themes basically, and then these people on staff try to find the best companies within a certain theme or how does it work? I would say half of our sourcing is thematic. The other half is more looking for characteristics of growth. And we have a number of different data sets and data elements that we look at to observe growth and publicly available information, or even sometimes not publicly available. So we call that general sourcing for growth indicators. And that's probably half the effort and the other half is thematic. You're focusing on internet applications, e-commerce and consumer products, and marketing is really important in those areas. But I saw you tweeted recently that it's been interesting to see how some companies have dialed back on marketing and what that's done to their business. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. What I tweeted about is you see companies testing, dialing back marketing, in some cases to zero. Airbnb, I I think famously did that at some point in the pandemic and realized that they dialed it back to zero and it didn't impact their revenues much at all. (laughs) And it's sort of interesting. I was commenting on how if you dial marketing back to zero and your revenues don't change in any material way, it could be genius. Like you have built a tremendous brand, like the case of Airbnb, or it can be a sign that you've been completely wasting your marketing dollars because because <laughs> uh, turning it off didn't do anything. And so it, it could be either ends of those, which is somewhat interesting to think about. Speaking about marketing, I was interested to see that one of your areas of focus is ad tech, which has been pretty radioactive in recent years. What aspects of ad tech are you looking at? Yeah, if you get to know us, we really love contrarian sectors and ad tech is a great example of that. And in fact, Chewy in the pet food e-commerce space was pretty contrarian at the time. Yes, ad ad tech being radioactive is a fair descriptor. There's been a lot of roadkill along the way. You're playing in a a sea of giants with Facebook and Google and others, but we've had some great success. And 
In particular, we're looking more at, if I had to call out two sub-segments, it's probably the proliferation of online video and adjacent to that, all of the proliferation around social media and the implications of that for both content and commerce businesses. But what you tend to see is wherever you can draw communities together, advertising platforms emerge and they start out inefficient, but they can become very efficient, which is actually good for the platform. And so we've invested in a couple companies, Kinetics, which is a native video advertising. Doing Things Media is, a, is one of our companies that's started in Instagram, but is, is a broad conglomerations of different brands and different social media channels that also has an advertising element to it. So we're really pleased with how that portfolio has developed. If you had to highlight one deal that you're doing right now, what would it be? What are you most interested in, in right now? That I haven't done yet, but I'm looking at? Is that what you're asking? Sure. Or one that you're involved with right now. Oh, one that I'm involved with right now that I think is very promising, ironically, has some characteristics similar to Chewy is U.S. Mobile. And funnily enough, this is another contrarian sector because U.S. Mobile is what is called a mobile virtual network operator which largely means they provide cell phone service. They're reselling the bandwidth of other carriers like Verizon, but they're adding a layer of value that makes them distinct from those carriers. And US Mobile basically enables you to have a very customized plan. And the carriers are trying to sell unlimited plans, but US Mobile enables you to customize it by data and voice and text needs. Probably a good example is a lot of us have unlimited plans. And during the pandemic, we never really left the home much. And so we are always under Wi-Fi with unlimited cellular plans, which doesn't really make any sense. And if you're a grandparent who doesn't leave home much, why are you on an unlimited plan? So and US Mobile has been scaling very aggressively, has has many of the similar dynamics of Chewy of being very customer service focused and having great retention of its customers in a, in a very large existing market where they're coming with a price and service value proposition. So we're very excited about that one. How did you find that deal? Uh, direct outreach from one of our team members, an analyst reached out to them. This came out of our thematic effort. We love investing in core services that we think technology is disrupting either from a price and or customer service perspective or both. And we were specifically looking out for a next generation mobile services company. How big is your team at this point? It's probably 30 plus at this point. And how many general partner level people are there? There are four investing partners at the firm right now. Okay, great. And by the way, I should have said this earlier, but congratulations. I saw that you had raised $675 million. Thank uh, you. Capital commitments for your fifth fund, which is great. How much money are you guys managing at this point? How, what are your assets under management? Just shy of $1.8 billion. Can you talk about how much you've returned to investors? I don't think I'm allowed to talk about that, but it's been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Has it been more than you've raised so far? If you look at the past, I'll say that all of our historical funds, so take out the fund that we just raised, I, it, it's done really well. <laughs> I'll just say, I'm, not, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say or not. Okay. Well, I know that Chewy sold for $3.35 billion. Then I know Ping, another of your companies, sold to Vista Equity Partners. This was maybe five years ago or something, but for $600 million, obviously you didn't own all the company. What are some of the other exits that you've seen so far? Yeah. So Kinetics was a big one for us that we sold to a private equity firm. This is in the ad tech space in the native video advertising area. We also recently sold a big majority portion of Securonics, which is in the security software area 
to private equity. Jazz HR, we've sold. So like these are all companies mixing in the internet and software emphasis of the company. Global Trans, we sold a while back to Jordan Companies, which is an online freight broker. So that'll give you a sense. But I think what we're known for within the investment community is we have a, a pretty high propensity to have high multiple outcomes, yet we have a very low propensity of losing capital. So it's almost like venture-like upside with buyout-like risk, low risk. And so that's kind of what we're known for within our LP base. So kind of investing in sure bets. And like you said earlier, they've got revenue. They're a little bit more established. Then you feel less impacted by the fact that the IPO market is kind of closed right now? I mean, we'd always love a robust IPO market. But yeah, we've had a, a higher propensity of exits towards a sale than taking companies public. Have you seen any change in terms with the market dipping, maybe more participating preferred or ratchets or other kinds of structure? From uh, you know 18 months ago when it was a raging bull market to now, yes, we've seen a change in terms. And it's, I mean, probably just the biggest change is in the absolute valuation of companies having come down, the multiples being paid have come down, the amount of capital being deployed and raised, therefore, by companies has come down. I don't have empirical evidence, but I'm sure terms like participating preferred and other ratchets like you discussed, those are probably much more prevalent today than they were 18 months ago. So yeah, terms have come down, but have they fully settled in where lots of transactions are clearing and happening? Not yet, but I would say our pipeline right now is probably the strongest it's been in years in terms of just the pure volume of companies. So I think you're going to see transactions really happening in the first half of this year. I think it's going to come back pretty strong. Larry, are you shopping opportunistically at all? Maybe looking at companies that may have been overvalued and possibly have fewer funding options right now? I think that's a totally viable strategy. It doesn't work well with our focus because we're looking for companies that really haven't raised institutional capital. And so they never had that super high mark on valuation from prior round of investment. But there are certainly a lot of companies out there that have high valuation marks in their prior round, raised a lot of money, didn't use or deploy that capital efficiently, are now trying to get profitable and probably need a little bit of capital to get there on more favorable terms for investors. And uh, although that's not in the area that we play, it's a totally legitimate strategy in my view. I think it's interesting that so many of your companies have sold to private equity firms. Is it a range of private equity firms? I know Ping had sold to Vista Equity Partners. I don't know the players very well. I'm just wondering if you have favorites. I mean, I don't know that we have favorites, but given that we play in software, obviously folks like Vista and Toma are pretty prolific in that world. But sometimes we're not selling directly to a PE firm, we're selling to a strategic, but the strategic is owned by PE like the case with PetSmart and uh, BC Partners. So it's kind of hard if you're selling to, at least in the bull market time, to, to not run into PE because for a season there and probably several years, and this is not normally the case, PE was bidding higher prices and moving faster than strategics were. And, and there was certainly an era where the consensus was that if you wanted the highest price possible, you'd have to sell to a strategic because they could impute the synergies of the combined entity into their valuation. But in the last decade, it's been PE that's been more aggressive. It's been incredible to me to see PE shopping for software companies. I'm wondering, do you have any advice maybe for people listening or reading who 
may need to sell their company or considering that avenue and want to understand how to make themselves more attractive to a PE buyer? The old adage is that you're bought, not sold. And Mm -hmm. I think you're in a market where the folks that are transacting right now are probably most aggressive on valuation. There's probably a fair amount of bottom fishing happening. So my advice would be to not need a transaction, to get self-sustaining, to work on your unit economics and focus on profitability more so than growth and control your destiny so that you don't need capital, you don't need a sale, and that will put you in a better position to weather the environment and probably be more attractive to buyers anyway. So I think it's a double win. Larry, we talked a little bit about US Mobile, a company that's in your portfolio. What companies, what sectors are you really excited about? A company that you just met with or something that that keeps you up? We've done a lot of work around the offshoot of content leading to commerce in and around different business models. But the starting point of social media as a launching point for lots of different businesses that are commerce-centric is increasing at a rapid rate. And so you're seeing online travel agencies being started with the social media foundation. You're you're seeing all sorts of brands being started with the social media foundation. And you're seeing influencer-led companies. And so we're seeing a lot there. From a software perspective, we're seeing a lot in commerce enablement. So all the infrastructure around supporting services, marketing, transactions, payments around e-commerce is, is certainly another area that we've looked at and spent a lot of time in. And so there's a lot of various sub-areas. We've spent time in, and have portfolio companies in both digital health and cloud management, which are both areas that I think are very prominent needs in the world today. So that's to give you a couple of examples. What's one deal that got away that uh, you wish you had invested in? In my career? Maybe recently. Oh, <laughs> recently, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think it's, I think in this market, we passed on a bunch of companies back a year, year and a half ago. And given the downturn in the markets, it's not as though you necessarily regret any of those. But in my career, the one that I passed on was Facebook. People know of that story. So that's the one that I probably should have done, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, I'm interested about raising your fund and yeah. uh, what that process was like. Were you raising in the midst of the downturn or had you already lined up your commitments? Yeah, that, that's a great topic. It's a very interesting time. So we alerted our LPs in the spring of 2022 that we were going to be raising in the fall of 2022, so starting in September. And you may recall in the spring of 2022, the market was going down by 4% a day. You know, mm-hmm. It was like very choppy times. And obviously we wondered what the reception would be. And the reception at that time was, even though we didn't ask for it, was many, many of our LPs coming back saying, hey, I want to increase my commitment by 50% or double or triple even. And it was just like an inflow of just inbound demand from our existing LPs. And like, oh, that's great. That's really encouraging. We're so pleased with that. Then we got to September and we actually launched the fundraise. And obviously things had settled in that the market was worse and all of the LPs felt more constrained. And it was kind of interesting. We could feel it. I don't think anyone really knew, even the folks that we were interacting with, whether they could come in for the amount they originally wanted, whether they were going to come in at all. And until we got to the subscription agreement day, which is the day you have to sign on the dotted line, 
with the amount. And by and large, nearly everyone came back in, but it was clearly a tougher environment from the spring to the fall. And we had pretty much closed the fund by Thanksgiving and announced it in January. But my understanding in talking to LPs now is that it's basically gotten sequentially worse every quarter last year and into this quarter this year from a fundraising perspective. And so we're really proud to get the fund done and thankful for the support of our LPs. That's great. And I appreciate your candor because I hear from LPs that they feel constrained. And I talk to VCs, they're like, oh, it's terrific. No problem at all. Oh, no. I'll give you one quote. Our fundraising council, this was in the fall time when we were in the midst of fundraising. He's been around for 25 years. He said this is the worst fundraising environment he's seen in his entire career. And he was there for the 2000 bust and obviously 2008 and everything. He's seen every cycle. And he called this the worst, which is a little little surprising to me, but I'll trust his judgment. (laughs) So knowing that, are you going to adjust your pacing at all? I mean, maybe the bigger question is, what do you think is happening out there? It's kind of hard for us to see from our perch. I mean, there's still so many fundings happening and they can't all be just getting announced belatedly, I don't think. So I'm having trouble making sense of the market right now. I don't think we're adjusting our pacing, but that's largely because we've been slow and methodical. Every fund's been three, three and a half, four years in between each fund, which used to be the normal pace. But then in the bull market, you see a lot of funds coming back in 18 months. And you're even seeing major funds like Tiger coming back with full multi-billion dollar funds in the same calendar year. (laughs) And, And we never did that. We never moved with that pace. But for those firms that moved at that pace and were deploying capital that aggressively, unquestionably, their pacing will slow down. That will be pushed back on in this environment as it should. Sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Larry, thank you so much for your time. It was really fun to catch up. We definitely should not uh, <laughs> so many years between conversations again. Absolutely. Anytime you'd like to, I'm happy to catch up. Thank you so much and good luck with all your investments. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and a special thanks to Tegas. Please check them out at tegas.com slash SVC. Have a terrific weekend, and we'll see you back here in two weeks.